In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Grace to you, and peace, and the unimaginable love of God be with each and every one of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. From the beginning, marriage has been an occasion of great joy. In fact, it can be argued that the entire creation narrative, in fact, then creation itself, comes to its climax when God puts Adam into a deep sleep and takes from his side a rib and fashions that rib into a woman and then takes the two, Adam and Eve, man and woman, and unites and joins them in one flesh. And from that one flesh union comes life that fills the world. Marriage is a joyful event. And St. Paul tells us that human marriage, marriage between man and woman, is in fact a type, a living icon of a deeper and more profound mystery and reality. That mystery and reality is the love of Christ for his church. A love that was there before the foundations of the earth and has written itself into creation that we might look for its fulfillment. Or to put that more simply, creation itself, as God designed it, is a love story, a wedding story. God's love for people, be they holy or sinful. I've decided to title this homily, Unimaginable Love, Unimaginable Insult. Because in our Lord's parable, we see both. And once again, our Lord preaches in such a way to leave us Appalled, appalled at the unimaginable insult that the human race has foisted and voiced against God. In our Lord Jesus' parable, you have a king who is giving a wedding feast for his son. But this king isn't throwing a normal wedding. This is an outrageous wedding, an unimaginable act of hospitality. Not only has he killed the oxen and all the fattened calves, borrowing from the language and imagery of Isaiah, which Jesus no doubt is doing, he has brought out the richest foods and the finest wines. This is going to be a time of food and drink and merrymaking and joy like the world has never seen. And this king does what no celebrity or politician or anyone, even in our rich and lavish age, does. He invites the entire city. <laughs> the entire city is to come to this great feast at his great expense, at his great cost, that they might rejoice in love, in marriage, in life and goodness. It's a beautiful picture. 
But this isn't how wedding invitations usually go, is it? Especially not if you're the father of a daughter and it's your wallet that's coming out. Invitations are a hassle to send out. Place settings are expensive. All of this fattened meat and fine wine has great cost to it. This king is doing, in a strange way, what we do. When we invite to our weddings, who is it that we invite? Who makes the list? Friends and family. And even then, sometimes there's a dividing line. Friends and family. In inviting the whole city to the wedding feast of his son, what is this king saying? I want you all to be as my friends, as my family, friends and family of the king. Is this not a perfect expression of God our Father's love for us? And one would think that as a king does everything for a city, including making sure that there's food and protection and everything else, if nothing else, the city would respond in obedience and a sense of duty and at least just come to be polite. But not this city. Out go the king's messengers, and they are ignored. No one who is invited wants to come. Not to be disheartened, the king sends out yet another round of messengers. Go and tell them that all is prepared, the feast is ready. But those to whom they go, ignore them, at least some of them. Some ignore them and head off to their farms. Work is preferable. Some go off to their businesses. Making money is preferable. And some take the king's servants, treat them shamefully, and kill them. What does the king do to that city and to those murderers? Well, justice. Upon those murderers, he puts them to death. That city that has rejected his kingship, he burns it down. This parable has its concrete fulfillment in God's own people rejecting him as he came in the person of his son Jesus and invited them to the feast of his love and his own received him not. And so it was that in the year 70 AD, Jerusalem was burned and those who murdered his son were in fact, or those who murdered his servants and his son were in fact themselves put to death. And in this, we have a microcosm of the judgment of the whole world. Those who reject the love of God will indeed have exactly what they think they want, namely, his justice. But thanks be to God, the story doesn't end there. This king is the king of unimaginable love. Not to be discouraged. He simply sends messengers out now and tells them, go into the streets, into the highways and the byways. Find the outcasts, the miscreants, the misfits. Find anyone you can and bring them into the feast, good and bad. And they do this very thing. And to the king's delight and to the delight of his son, the wedding hall is filled. What a beautiful picture of justification by grace through faith, apart from works, good and evil alike are joined at the feast of God's table. In this respect, very concretely, we could see that as the Jews of the first century rejected Jesus, the Gentiles flooded in. And as the centuries have rolled on, 
it continues to be the case that many who are called reject and refuse the call, but not to be deterred. Our God continues to invite until he gathers a crowd of good and bad misfits and fit-ins and gathers us all together in his kingdom of grace, in his wedding feast. But once more, his unimaginable love is met with unimaginable insult. As the king enters the feast, he sees a man sitting there not wearing wedding garments. He's probably got on a tank top and some cargo shorts and flip-flops. He's not dressed for the wedding, not because he couldn't dress for the wedding, but because he wouldn't dress for the wedding. And there we see in this individual, even though he's made it into the feast, even though he's sumptuously dining upon all the goodness and mercy and love of the king, in his heart is the same selfishness, self-righteousness, and hatred for the king that the others exhibited when they refused to come. So once more, the king does only what is just. He says to his servants, bind him hand and foot, and out he goes. There is no place for a heart that hates the king in the king's wedding feast of love. Now, church fathers, commentators, etc., for centuries have debated what exactly these wedding garments are. Do they represent faith? Do they represent repentance? Do they represent baptism, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Do they represent good works, as Chrysostom and uh, Gregory and others suggested? Perhaps it's more fundamental. Perhaps it's all of these, yes, but more fundamental. It's an attitude of the heart. This man stands on his own and still despises the king. And so in our Lord's words, we have this strict warning, even to us who are gathered here, to check ourselves and check our hearts, lest there be a root of bitterness within us that despises the king and seeks out our own. Our Lord ends his parable by saying, many are called, but few are chosen. And he leaves us with judgment. He leaves us with a rather sour taste in our mouths, and he does this purposefully. We are to be appalled, but not at the king, as for whatever perverse and confused reason we are when we read this parable. We are to be appalled at the city that rejected him, and appalled at the brazenness of this man who refused to dress appropriately to the wedding. We are be, to be appalled at unbelief and unbelievers. And that includes being appalled at our own hearts, at the unbelief we find in us. Sometimes, is it not true, we have to drag ourselves kicking and screaming to the wedding feast on Sunday morning. Even though like the city with the king, we owe our God and Father absolutely everything. Everything we have is a gift from his. Even we ought to just simply come out of duty, if not out of love. And yet even this, we frequently will not do or do fighting ourselves. 
Our Lord Jesus does not wish us to despair. He wishes us to repent. To see things in the way of his parable. To see, that, for example, that in a given week, Google tells me there's 168 hours, God requires precisely one. One. Jesus wants for us to be appalled, but he also wants for us to be amazed, to meditate upon the goodness of the king and his son and the wedding feast. And as I said at the beginning of this homily, the original creation comes to a climax in the wedding of Adam and Eve. On the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ puts an end to this first creation and a beginning to a new creation. He says, behold, I am making all things new. So just as in the beginning we see God put Adam into a deep sleep, so we see God put our Lord Jesus into a deep sleep from which he will rise three days later. As God put Adam into a deep sleep and took from his side a rib, so God puts Jesus into a deep sleep and from his side takes not a rib, but as John tells us, from his side flows water and blood. The water of the baptismal font, the blood of the chalice, those very things that constitute and make the church. Jesus is our second Adam, and from his side comes the new bride, the bridegroom and his bride, the lamb and the wedding feast, the end of revelation and the end of scripture, and also the end of this world, the end of this age. From start to finish, it has been a love story, a wedding story. God, who loves us so deeply and dearly in Christ Jesus, he will make all things new for us. So let us come then, this day, to the wedding feast, because that is what is laid out for us. A feast of God's love and grace and mercy to good and evil, to wicked to sinners and saints, to wicked and just, to everyone. And we come to this table and we receive from him life, forgiveness, salvation. And here at this table, we have the wedding feast itself, of course, but we also have a foretaste of that great and final wedding feast to come. Let us rejoice today in the unimaginable love of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please.